0: Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire
1: Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Napo's Podcast Standout for organizing and productivity professionals to better your business. I'm productivity catalyst Claire Kumar and thrilled to be with you again. Now, this episode is special, especially for all you productivity professionals out there, because you are going to already know and love my guest. We're going to be diving into the topic of distraction. Now, Your attention may well be your greatest resource. It is certainly in demand and as evidenced by every application that you download that's clamoring for the permission to send you a notification and interrupt your day at some time when you're not expecting it, we could be tempted to blame technology. But perhaps that's too easy. Here to shed some light on the topic is author, speaker, entrepreneur and investor, Nir Eyal. Let me tell you a little bit more about Nir. He lives in the world of behavioral design, which is at the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He weaves together user experience, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. You can see why I love everything that he's about. So Nir authored his first book, Hooked how to build habit forming products. Those are the apps that I was just talking about. And his most recent book, Indistractable How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir is also a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Design and a successful entrepreneur and investor in the likes of Anchor. You might have heard that. That's a Spotify platform for podcasting. And you do have a podcast, Nir, which I just discovered last night. Focusmate, which is helping people around the world get things done, and one of my fave apps ever, Canva. So a big warm welcome to you, Nir.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you.
1: Thanks for joining me. I've been excited for this for weeks. Before we dive into the topic of of distraction, though, I'd love to start with something you mentioned towards the end of the book in the Acknowledgements. You share that your daughter, Jasmine, was the inspiration to become indistractable. And not only that, she helped with the naming of the book, the cover design, and its marketing. I wonder if you can tell (laughs) just a little bit about Jasmine's spirit, what she inspired, and then how she helped you out. She was really
0: the spark for this entire book. The reason it was because this is in the book in detail, but every time I tell this story, I clench up a little bit because it's a little bit personal and a little bit embarrassing. So I'll just go ahead and tell it. But basically, so I had just published my first book, and it was all about how to build habit forming products. And the idea behind that book was to help all sorts of entrepreneurs out there build the kind of products and services that build good habits in our lives. It's not for the social media companies and the video game companies, they know those techniques. That's where I stole these methods from. (laughs) And what I wanted to do was to democratize them for everybody else. So we can build Ed tech and health tech and FinTech products to help people live better, happier, more connected lives. So shortly after that book was published and became a bestseller, I had an afternoon planned with my daughter and we sat down together and we had this book of activities that were designed to bring daddies and daughters together, just like a daddy and me book. One of the activities was to do a Sudoku puzzle together. Another was to have a paper airplane flying contest, all kinds of silly little things that we could do together. And one of the activities in the book was to each answer this question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, I started checking my phone. I don't even know what I was looking at. And my daughter got the message that I was sending very clearly that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she left the room to go play with some toy outside. And that's when I realized I had blown it. And Claire, I told this story to a friend of mine, just like I just told you. And we have daughters of similar age. And it's funny. He asked his daughter. He was curious. He said, hey, honey, I'm curious. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? Expecting that she'd say fly like Superman or have a lasso like Wonder Woman or something. And she said, I want to talk to animals. And he said, that's interesting. Why would you want to talk to animals? And she says, so that when you and mommy are on your phones, I'll have someone to talk to. (laughs) <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yes. Talk about tugging at our heartstrings. And many oh, of us, yeah. we've experienced this. Who hasn't been snubbed at the table? By the way, the a new term. Phone snubbing is fubbing now. Phone snubbing is called fubbing. Oh,
1: where it's clearly giving the impression that my phone beats you. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, who hasn't sat down in a
0: meeting? Half the room on their device. Sorry, Nira. I've just got yeah. yeah. a <laughs> Over here, Claire, over here. I'm talking. <laughs> right. And who hasn't done this themselves? The fact of the matter is, we do this all the time. And even if you're polite enough not to do this to someone sitting across the table from you, if you're anything like I used to be, I would sit down at work and I would say, okay, I'm definitely going to work on that big project. And yet somehow 20, 30, 40 minutes later, I'm doing everything but the thing I said I was going to do this morning. Or I used to say, oh, I'm definitely going to exercise. I wouldn't. I'm totally going to start eating right. No, I didn't. And I got sick of it, Claire. At some point, I said, wait a minute. If you ask me what superpower I would most want, I just want the power to do what I say I'm going to do. Because the fact of the matter is today, we all know what to do. We know what to do. If you don't know what to do, Google it. Who doesn't know that the way to be healthy, the way to take care of everybody is to eat right and exercise. Does anybody not know that? Do we need another diet book to tell us this? We know. Does anybody not know that if you want to have good relationships with the people you love, you have to be fully present? We know that. Does anybody need to be told that to excel at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do? We know this. The problem is, we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting. We in need, our
1: need way. to interrupt our own patterns, and you talk about that. And so I have to say that my pool closed months ago, and that was my easy go-to morning ritual that really kicked off my day really well. I lost it. I've been floundering without it. But with your suggestion in my ear, especially rereading the book again, I read it months ago and I was rereading it again this week, I had this concept you have of you talk about getting in touch with the trigger, the task, and the temperament. And getting in touch with the trigger is like, wait a second. I'm wondering if you can dive into that because I just want to credit you right now because I went and climbed stairs in my building this morning before our meeting (laughs) because I thought. I need to replace this ritual that was really working so well for me with something else. But without having made a decision, it was easy to see erosion. And I would find myself in my pajamas at two in the afternoon in January on a gray day going, (laughs) well, you said you were going to shower after you exercise, but look at this. You haven't exercised yet. (laughs) It's pretty bad. So can you help us? Yeah, understand that. The best place to start
0: is to really dissect this term distraction. What does it even mean? I thought I understood what the term meant and I didn't. A good way to know if you understand a word is to test yourself by asking whether you know the opposite of that term. What's the antonym? So if you ask people, what's the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you it's focus, but that's not exactly right. The opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. That both words, come the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that Distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action we take. So, traction by definition oh. is any
1: action. So, distraction is an action we take.
0: Yes, they're both actions.
1: That's huge right there because we think somebody's doing something to us. But wait exactly. a second. Okay, I love That's that right. point.
0: So, traction is any action that you take that pulls you towards your goals, things you do with intent things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from living out your values and becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is much more than semantics. This is really important because I would argue any action can be traction or distraction based on our intent, based on whether we use forethought. Now, let me give you an example. I used to, for years, sit down at my desk at work, get into work first thing in the morning and say, okay, there's that big thing I need to do on my to-do list, top of my to-do list, that thing that I've been procrastinating, making my calls or writing that chapter, whatever the case might be, that thing that I need to do. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to work on it right now. That's what I said I'm going to do with my morning. I'm going to get started. But first, (laughs) let me just check some emails. Let me just check that email or scroll a few Slack channels or do some of the other things on my to-do list, the easy tasks real quick, just to get started. Why? Because they're all work-related. I'm not being unproductive. I'm doing work-related tasks. And what I didn't realize is that that is the worst, most dangerous, most pernicious form of distraction. When we allow distraction to trick us into prioritizing the easy and the urgent work as opposed to the hard and important work. So and just is that because email is work They're related, pulling us,
1: because there's an expectation from somebody else, it's pulling us because we know somebody's expecting, but that hard, important work of a chapter to write where nobody's waiting for that chapter right now, it doesn't have the same pull. Is there something to that?
0: Well, anything that is not what you plan to do with your time is by definition, a distraction anything. Even the stuff that feels productive is a distraction. It's the worst kind of distraction because you don't even realize you got distracted. Conversely, anything can be traction. So I'm not one of these chicken little tech critics that tells you that the iPhone is melting your brain and stop using social media. That's rubbish. You can watch YouTube videos. You can go on social media. You can use these technologies. They're wonderful, but you have to use them on your schedule and according to your values, not someone else's. So We've got traction. We've got distraction. Now, to your question around what prompts us to those actions. So here's where we have triggers. We have two kinds of triggers. We have external triggers, which are things like your boss sending you an email, the pings and dings in the environment around you. Those are all external triggers. But it turns out when it comes to our technology, that's only 10% of the time that we check our phones do we check them because of an external trigger. Can you believe this? Studies find people check their phone only 10% of the time because of a ping or ding. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time is because of what we call an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. Let me say that again. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape from. So 90% of the time you get distracted, it is because of a feeling Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. That is 90% of the time that we get distracted is because of what we call an internal trigger, which brings me to this cold, hard conclusion, okay? Time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. I know your audience is full of productivity gurus and experts, and I'm telling you, none of our life hacks work for people unless we help them deal with the discomfort that they are trying to escape. That is the most important step. We have to start with those internal triggers. It's about feelings first and foremost. So that's step one to becoming indistractable, mastering the internal triggers. Because look, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, we will always get distracted unless we know how to deal with those internal triggers so that we can leverage them like rocket fuel to propel us towards traction rather than trying to escape this discomfort through distraction.
1: Brilliant. And so powerful. It's catching that moment, tuning into those feelings and then knowing what to do to deal with it. And exactly. there's one suggestion you have, which I really liked, which was to allow yourself some time. Sit with that thought, notice it, observe it, and don't move to responding to the compulsion to act in that way. Other people call it as surfing the urge.
0: That's right. Yeah. This comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. So I read a lot of business books and productivity books, and I always really dislike these books that are basically full of personal anecdotes of, well, this worked for me, so it should work for you. That's nice, but I want to see the studies. I want to see the peer-reviewed studies. So there's 30 pages of citations to peer-reviewed studies. And one of these techniques, there's dozens of different techniques that I talk about in that one specific chapter around how to master internal triggers. One of them is about surfing the urge and using what's called the 10-minute rule. And I didn't invent this. This comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And the idea here is that instead of telling yourself no, you want to tell yourself not yet. Why? Because abstinence backfires. That when you tell yourself don't do something, this leads to what we call the ironic process theory. So for example, Claire, right now, I want you to do something that you're not doing right now. I want you to just continue doing what you're doing right now, which is, don't think about a white bear. <laughs> right. Don't do it, Claire. Don't think about a white bear. What are you thinking about right now, Claire? Oh, a
1: white bear with a red shirt. Of course you I'm are. like putting a red shirt on that bear, trying to do something. <laughs>
0: so this is why when we tell people, oh, you should take a digital detox or just stop using social media or just stop checking email so often, just abstain, it doesn't work. It's like pulling on a rubber band. When you pull on a rubber band, you pull, 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 pull. Eventually you can't pull anymore. And when you let go, the rubber band doesn't just go where it started. No, it ricochets across the room. So instead of telling us, don't do <laughs> You yeah, get her exactly. playing with
1: rubber bands. <laughs>
0: and it turns out this is actually the root of addiction. We're learning more and more that addiction is not about just the chemicals. It's about 1% of what happens in your body. It's 99% of what's happening in your brain. Meaning it's not the chemical addiction. It's how we... Think about these things that when people tell themselves, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Okay, fine. I'll smoke. The pleasure that comes from smoking is simply the relief of not having to tell yourself don't smoke because almost 100% of smokers don't actually like the sensation of smoking. If you survey them, it turns out studies have found they actually don't like it. <laughs> wow. So back to this 10-minute rule, I got a little off track here. So the 10-minute rule says don't tell yourself no, tell yourself not yet. So how does this work? When you have a task that you need to complete, and in the middle of the task, you find yourself about to want to go check email or Google something, or let's say you're on a diet and you're trying to resist that piece of chocolate cake, or you're trying to stop smoking, instead of telling yourself don't do it, instead of telling yourself no, you want to tell yourself I can do those things. There's no problem. I can check email. I can eat the chocolate cake. But I'm the right boss now. of me. <laughs> exactly. You're yeah. in control. It's your decision. But I'm not going to do it right now. I'm going to do it in 10 minutes. So this happens to me all the time. So the writing is hard work. I've written thousands of articles. I've been published in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review. I've written two bestsellers. It never gets easy. Writing is always a difficult, horrible slog. It is hard work. It never becomes a habit, <laughs> at least not in my case. So when I am writing, all I want to do is go Google something, do some quote unquote research, check email just escape the discomfort that comes with writing. So instead of doing that, what I'll do, instead of escaping that discomfort with distraction, what I'll do is I'll take out my phone, I'll set a timer for 10 minutes, I'll put the phone down, and now I can take one of two paths. I can either, when I'm ready, get back to the task at hand, get back to the writing, or sit with that sensation, do what's called surf the urge, because what we know about these sensations, these uncomfortable internal triggers, they're like waves. They feel like they're going to last forever, but that's not the case. They crest, and then they subside. And if we can ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard, if we can surf the urge long enough for it to crest and subside, we don't have that urge anymore. And all it takes is 10 minutes. It's amazing. If you just set the timer for 10 minutes and just sit with yourself. Figure out, okay, what am I feeling right now? Where is this coming from? I tell you exactly what kind of dialogue to have with yourself. It's very important. You can have a bad dialogue that makes it worse, or you can have a self-compassionate dialogue that makes it better. And what you will find that by the time those 10 minutes are up, you'll be right back on that task at hand.
1: That's amazing. Is there science behind the 10 minutes?
0: It's just a good starting point. Now, the idea is over time, the 10-minute rule becomes the 12-minute rule and the 15-minute rule. So what you're doing is you're building self-efficacy. You're proving to yourself You're dispelling this myth that people carry around with them. It drives me crazy. Oh, I have a short attention span. I have an addictive personality. I'm not good with self-control. I don't have willpower. I'm a Sagittarius. Whatever cockamamie excuse we put on ourselves, this temperament that we think we have, and none of it's true. (laughs) So what you're doing is training yourself to believe that you are capable. You are indistractable.
1: I love it. I've been coaching a few clients recently, and I've seen this over the years. A lot of people have this same issue, and you can nod if you're out there with the same challenge. You've had a long day at work. You've maybe had time with your kids, and you're tired at the end of the day, but you feel like you deserve some me time. So you're going to put on the TV, or you're going to scroll on your phone before bed, and you know your intention is, well, I said I was going to get to bed early. But then you follow this path into... in. The intention is, and this is where when I'm working with clients, I'm like, you have to honor your intention was you want to play a little, you want to escape. You don't want to have to be contributing then. Okay. So what does it look like if you were intentional and put some boundaries on that? What could it look like? And how are you going to interrupt yourself? So it doesn't become instead of 15 minutes, it becomes an hour and a half. Is it not using something electronic? Is it going back to paper that doesn't have other browser windows potentially? How are you going to put some boundaries on it and still honor what your body was telling you it wanted. So to not deny it.
0: This is why there's these four critical pillars to becoming indistractable. We talked a little bit about the internal triggers and how we can master those internal triggers. There's all kinds of tools we can use, all kinds of arrows in our quaver that we can pull out whenever we feel that discomfort. It's important that we know which tools to use for the job. But that's just step one, mastering the internal triggers. Step number two is to make time for traction. We talked about traction earlier. So one of the best things we can do is to plan out our day. It's called making an implementation intention. And there's literally been Thousands of studies that show how effective it is to simply plan your time. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to scroll Facebook or check Instagram or watch a video on Netflix. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it as long as it's done with intent, with forethought. If you're doing it to escape discomfort, that's not a healthy behavior. That's a harmful behavior. If you're ignoring your family, if you're ignoring your other obligations, and you're looking for emotional escape when you did not intend to. That's distraction. But if you put on your calendar, hey, from after dinner, from eight to eight thirty, I'm gonna scroll social media, and then from eight thirty to ten o'clock, I'm gonna watch Netflix. No problem. It's not up to me or anybody else to tell you how to spend your time. I want you to book that time. The difference is here's the thing: most people use this horrendous technique of running their life on a to-do list, and the research shows that running your life on a to-do list is terrible for your personal productivity terrible now let me clarify i'm not against taking things out of your head and putting them on a piece of paper or in an app that's good what i'm against is running your life on a to-do list if you wake up in the morning and you look at your to-do list rather than your calendar to tell you what to do with your time you've already lost why because here's what's happening exactly what you talked about with your client your client gets home at the end of the day They're tired. They want to relax. They want to be with their family. They want to watch TV. They just want to unwind. But they're still thinking about their to-do list. They're still thinking about all the things they didn't accomplish. And they feel guilt and they feel shame that there's all these tasks left undone. Why? Because the to-do list, nobody ever finishes all the things on their to-do list. Because to-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more, more and more. As opposed to a time box calendar, there is a constraint. You can always make more money. You can't make more time. So we should be stingy with our time and generous with our money because we can't make more time. Everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. So when a person who keeps a time box calendar comes home from work, on their time box calendar is spend time with the kids. And anything but doing that is a distraction. Exactly. In my calendar, it says, I'm going to watch TV. That now becomes traction. Everything else is a distraction. And I think very few people listening to me right now have ever felt the joy The freedom of real leisure, knowing that whatever it is that you're doing right now is exactly what you plan to do. It is such a gift you can give yourself, but that only comes when you plan your day. Why? Because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you can't look at your calendar and tell me what it
1: was you planned to do, you have no right to say you got distracted because what'd you get distracted from? You didn't plan it. Can you say that one sentence again? I think that is so powerful. You can't call it a distraction unless...
0: You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if your calendar is full of just blank space, if you're one of these people who says, oh, I just want the freedom to do whatever it is I want to do, you don't realize that you're not free. You are caged by the fact that you don't give yourself some constraints, that we perform our best when we give ourselves some constraints. But that requires a little bit of planning. And the people who put in the just 15 minutes a week, literally, this is all it takes 15 minutes every week to make a time box calendar. Trust me, it will change your life.
1: I totally agree with you. Those days where the calendar has no blocks in it, there's almost no urgency even to finish something before the next thing comes up. I'm fueled by that kind of, okay, I got 30 minutes until I'm meeting so-and-so. What can I knock off? There's a fuel to it. But there's also a resistance I've seen over the years with people who are like, I don't want to schedule. I feel too restricted. Have you got any research around where that feeling comes from? There's a rebelliousness to being yes,
0: That's exactly right. And This is called psychological reactance. Psychological reactance is this phenomenon that's well-studied, well-observed, that when we feel like our autonomy is threatened, when we are told what to do, The natural human reflex is to rebel. Now, here's why humans are so weird. It turns out that we experience reactance, not only when our boss micromanages us, not only when you were a kid and your mom told you what to do, your mom says, take an umbrella, take a coat, don't tell her what to do. That's reactance. Not only do we experience when someone else tells us what to do, we also experience it when we tell ourselves what to do. How messed up is that? (laughs) (laughs)
1: right? It really is. And it's so there. I'm suffering from it a little bit right now because I feel like, oh, I don't want to have too many commitments in my calendar. But when I have them, I embrace them. And it's finding the right rhythm of how much free time there ought to be for mind wandering and flexing. I think I'm a little bit too attached to, oh, it's nice that I want to go out now. I want to be able to do that. And having the rigidity and commitments to people to say, oh, I'm going to do a clubhouse every week. I don't know.
0: I'll give you three solutions to this. Number one, we have to change our conversation with ourselves. So instead of telling ourselves, I have to do something, because my calendar says so we want to change that dialogue to realize we get to do that thing. Okay, that's one way to disarm psychological reactance. It's not a calendar that someone set for you, you decided how you are going to spend that time. And so you get to do the task, you don't have to do the task.
1: You're still the boss of you. You're still the boss of you. You are still the boss of you have not demoted yourself.
0: (laughs) That's right. That's one way to disarm psychological reactance. Another way is to realize that these calendars in the day, when you make a time box calendar, that's set, but you want to revise your calendar over time. So in my life and most people that I've worked with over the years, we revise our calendar every week. And it takes me literally, Claire, I have 15 minutes scheduled in my calendar every Sunday night to review my schedule for the week ahead. And I ask myself, how can I make that schedule easier to follow in the week ahead? So I adjust it. Hey, I do really miss in the summertime going out for a walk. No problem, I'll put that now in my schedule. Okay, which leads me to the third piece of advice is that I don't want you just to schedule the productive stuff, quote unquote. It's not just about work. If you like playing video games, if you like social media, if you like taking walks, if you wanna pray, meditate, watch TV, I don't care. By putting it in your schedule, that's where you allow yourself to spend your time any way you wish according to your values. So it's not just about rigidly cranking out work. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about making sure that you take care of what I call these three life domains of you, your relationships, and then finally your work to make sure that you're spending your time in accordance with your values.
1: And that's the key to a fulfilling life, which is what a lot of people that come to me are, complaining they don't have. It's like, I'm working really hard, but I'm not productive at work, debatable, and I'm not present at home. And those two challenges are making people feel like less than enough everywhere. And that's exhausting and unfair given the amount of work people are doing. So I love that when you get this alignment and you not only have this time box calendar, but you have these tools to deal with the internal triggers. And you talk about hacking back the external triggers. So so you're sort of refining. I think life is always about refining your situation. So I love that you mentioned in the calendar approach and structure to be looking at it as it's a fluid thing. It's not, this is the way you're going to live forever. This is the best we're going to do this week. This is what we think we're going to do. And then you can reflect and adjust again. And I guess you're coming to us from Singapore now, which is pretty consistent when the sun rises and sets, it doesn't fluctuate so much. And the weather is pretty consistent. I'm in Toronto. I could have minus 21 day and plus 15 the next day. It's wildly all over the place. And so it's curious to me how that influences our motivation, our energy levels, not to get on a tangent, but I think a great success for us as human beings, is managing our neurotransmitters. It's like understanding those triggers. And so boredom comes in, you pay attention to that trigger, what do you do? Have you looked at how we integrate our environments and those kind of external forces that are actually really compelling to us as human animals? Have you looked into that piece at all?
0: Yeah, so we talked about step one is mastering the internal triggers. Step two is making time for traction. Step three is hacking back the external triggers. Step four is preventing distraction with packs, which we can get to. So step three is all about making sure that all those external triggers, that we're not passive. Becoming indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. I get distracted from time to time. But here's the thing. The difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person is that a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same predictable things again and again and again. How many times can we complain that, oh, there was an emergency at work? (laughs) Really? That's not predictable? That you have emergencies at work? If it happens more than once, it's not unpredictable. (laughs) The weather. Okay, I understand Toronto weather. I spend six months in New York. Yeah. But you know what? It's winter every year, (laughs) right? Like it comes and goes. So we can take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. So a distractible person keeps getting distracted. It's like Poela Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So an indistractible person says, ah, I see their there, distraction. I see what you did there. But I know that every distraction only has three potential sources, an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. I'm going to make sure that I take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. So to your question around external triggers, this is the most practical section of the book. It's just a quick fire. There's like eight chapters of all the different external triggers. Meetings and emails and Slack notifications and kids. How many of us <laughs> are working And pets. <laughs> and pets, all these things that can be distractions. I show you step by step by step how to hack back the external triggers. That's actually probably the easiest thing to do. For example, two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings.
1: That blew me away. That's the first thing I tell people. That's the first thing I'm like, the first thing we're going to do is stop all these beeps and dings. It's like sending your cortisol through the roof. It's like a toddler going, mommy, 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 through the day. I'm like, why are you doing this to yourself?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Or like these notifications that are all over people's phones, they open up their computer screen. There's a million icons and notifications. We can turn that stuff off. So it takes five minutes. We cannot dare to complain that this technology is addicting us and dopamine pumps and all this silly stuff. It's ridiculous. It's not true. Take five minutes to change these notification settings. That's kindergarten stuff. That's the easy stuff. You don't need to buy a book to tell you how to do that. The harder stuff is the stuff that's culturally endemic. What do you do if you work in a workplace where it's not the technology, it's your boss who calls you at 9 p.m. when you're having dinner with your family or something? That's a more difficult issue. But it turns out that we can actually fix that issue as well. It's a culture problem. The nice thing is culture can change. And I show you exactly how in the book.
1: That's exactly right. And it starts with yourself. What can you do? And then you can move out into what else you can influence and what boundaries you can set. But I always ask my clients, so think you're going to forget to check your email? Do you think you're going to forget about it? You don't need a reminder to do something you're naturally going to do anyway. So you only need a reminder to pull you out to bring your attention to that which you intended to do at a specific time so that I'm here with you in this moment and I didn't get absorbed into something else and forget to dial in.
0: That's right. The mantra is, is this trigger serving you or are you serving it? So not all external triggers are bad. I had an external trigger that told me it was time for our conversation. That's great. That was serving me. But if I'm spending time with my daughter, and that's what I plan to do with my time, I don't need a ping or ding right then.
1: I mean, the real great place to start for people is to get really clear on your intentions around not just your workday, but that rich life that you want to cultivate for yourself. And I just did a radio interview last week. And the quote that they used was that I think we don't reflect on what we want in that richness of life. We don't pause. And to your point, if you don't have the intention, then how can you say you were distracted?
0: So that's right. And so this where values come into play. So values are attributes of the person you want to become. That's the definition, my definition of values, attributes of the person you want to become. So we have to ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time? We can talk a good talk about our values. Most people value their health, but do they have time in their schedule for physical activity? Do they have time in their schedule for sleep? We know that sleep is absolutely critical for physiological and psychological well-being. We tell our kids, oh, you have to get to bed on time. You have a bedtime. But we're hypocrites. Do we have a bedtime? No.
1: (laughs) Most of us don't. I did a whole thing on sleep this last month about it because, I mean, and the National Sleep Association will tell us you need seven to nine hours. I'm like, Huey, what do you actually need to find your sleep number? If you need nine and you're only getting seven, there's a problem.
0: (laughs) So what most people do is they're not intentional with it. They don't sit down and say, wait a minute, if I need, let's say, eight hours of sleep, well, that means I need to go to bed at 10, and that means I need to start brushing my teeth at 930 and take a shower. By planning out your day, it seems like it's a lot of work. It's actually not. You do it once, and then you revise it (laughs) just in small bits. But it is a life-changing practice because it's the only way to make sure you're living according to your values.
1: I get people to add a timer in. So I now know my hair used to take 35 seconds. It was much like yours. (laughs) Now it's after COVID. It's just, I haven't been able to get a haircut since October. So now it's three (laughs) minutes and 15 seconds to dry my hair (laughs) and eight minutes to do my makeup. So it's when you know these things, then you can say, I need half an hour to get ready for an interview. So knowledge is power. Awareness is power and intent.
0: Imagine if you extrapolate that out to all sorts of tests. This is another reason why to-do lists, or I should say more specifically, running your life on a to-do list is so terrible because we have what's called a planning fallacy. And studies have found that people on average take three times longer to finish a task than they planned. That's on average. Why? Because when we put a task on a to-do list, we have no feedback mechanism to teach us how long something takes. So the reason you know that doing your makeup takes eight minutes is because you have rapid feedback telling you, oh, how long did it take me? You learned over time. The problem is with most people, when it's a big assignment, when it's finished this PowerPoint presentation or write this chapter or finish this blog post or make the sales calls, when it's on a to do list, there's no feedback. We never learn how long something takes us unless we make time for it in our calendars. And then we have this feedback loop. So the goal is not, ooh, how many boxes did I check off? That's not the right metric. The goal is one thing, to work on a task for as long as you said you would without distraction. That's it. Work on that task for as long as you said you would without distraction. And the kicker is the people who use that method that I described in Indistractable and measure themselves solely based on their ability to work on a task without distracted, they actually finish more. They are more productive than the people who use the outdated to-do list method.
1: And aren't they feeling completely different at the end of their day?
0: Absolutely. They're like,
1: yeah, rock star. That's right. So it's building that efficacy and sense of pride and the self-talk can change then. And great thing, I think, though, is I love that you bring up self-compassion in this journey because nobody there should be beating themselves up about what's happened already. What can we do going forward and how can you be kind to yourself to you get there? Do you want to talk about packs as the last thing that we talk about?
0: Yeah, I'll make it quick because I know we're running low on time, but essentially, pacts are the last line of defense. So there is no one magic bullet. There's no one life hack. There's no one magic solution that's going to take care of all your procrastination and distraction problems. It's really about using these four steps in concert mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers. And if those three fail, we utilize what we call a pre commitment device which acts as like a firewall so that if we somehow slip off track, we have this last line of defense to prevent us from getting distracted. So I talk about how we have what we call identity packs, price packs, and effort packs to keep us on track just in case the other three techniques fail.
1: <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Yes. they might. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it happens. It's really about using these four techniques in concert.
1: It's amazing. There's a whole toolkit here. So I hope everybody's listening has taken some gems away. It's a fabulous read. It's a fabulous for you. you. I mean, it was fabulous for me as a productivity coach. I took loads away. And also when you're working with your clients, there are things that here that you will want to embed in your practice for sure. So Nir, thank you so much for joining us. It was a treat. I knew it would be a fantastic conversation. I invite everybody to find Nir at nearandfar.com. And near is N-I-R. So near and far.com. Pick up a copy of Indistractable. I'm showing it for anybody who's watching on YouTube. It's a gorgeous bright yellow color. You can't miss it. Even if you're distracted, you will not miss this, this book. <laughs> and leave a review if you've listened to this podcast and you find it interesting. We're in all the places. And if you want to find out all the episodes, of course, you can find them at napopodcast.com. So until our next episode, please be kind to yourself, stay safe out there and enjoy your journey.
0: That's all for today's episode of Stand Out brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters,
1: and more.